What a great story we were just uh, shown in that video. It ties in with our message this morning, in fact, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. So I'd invite you now to bow with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can gather to study your word, to hear uh, from it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak through this word, speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we have come to part 35 in our series in Romans. We've entered Romans chapter 13 in the sermon which I've entitled, The Christian and the Government. And so today here in Romans 13 verses 1 to 7, we've heard this morning one of the most hotly contested passages in Scripture, especially in recent months and years about what the attitude of the Christian should be towards their governing authorities. Now, of course, over the past year and a half, we as Canadians have had our government through various health orders be more directly involved in our everyday affairs than we as Canadians have ever experienced before. And so when we read Paul's opening instruction, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, Well, it's no surprise that this has been tried, tested, and wrestled with like never before. And I will say that at the outset of this, that I have personally studied and wrestled with this passage of Scripture along with others uh, in Scripture as well. And now perhaps it's fitting that we come to this passage right on the stretch run of a federal election, isn't it? That, that all we hear these days, it seems, is politics, politics, politics. Everyone's talking politics. It fills the news feeds. It's, it's what everyone is talking about. Now, Mark Twain, some of you might be familiar with the famous 19th century author, he was not overly fond of politics, and he, he had a few pithy remarks about politics in general. One of them I found quite uh, interesting. He once wrote this. An honest man in politics would shine more brightly than he would anywhere else, simply for his rarity. So, (laughs) you can think on that, but that was in the 1800s, right? So, I think that falls into the category of there's nothing new under the sun. And while it's likewise easy for us to look at our politicians, listen to our politicians and all of their promises, right? And, and we wonder, is, is there an honest politician out there who actually means to keep the promises that he makes? And it's easy for us to become cynical. Nevertheless, the Apostle Paul's instructions of what our basic attitude as Christians is to be towards our governing officials and leaders, it still stands, and I'll say it still stands regardless of who wins this election, right? It it doesn't matter. These, these instructions don't change depending on if our preferred candidate wins or not. In fact, it doesn't even change if the form of government were to change, right? This, this applies to every nation on earth, regardless of form of government. This is a very broad, all-encompassing instruction. Now, in some of the debate over Romans chapter 13, as I have listen to different perspectives and different teachings on it and read different things, I've seen a tendency towards two equal yet opposite errors. At the one extreme, there are those who interpret this passage so loosely and so um, 
liberally, I'll say, as to almost make it say that the Christian really doesn't need to live subject to their governing authorities very much at all. And they're, they're dismissive of the passage. I've seen this tendency. And then on the other extreme, I've seen those who take this passage as an ironclad edict that Christians must always be subject to the government on everything, without exception, no matter what. And I will tell you, at the outset, that both extreme positions are wrong. Now, in the former case, it's abundantly clear in this passage that the Apostle Paul is setting a very high bar for how Christians are to behave and their attitude towards the government. And the high bar is that Christians are to make every effort to live peacefully as law-abiding citizens under whatever earthly government they happen to be living under at the time. That's a very high bar. And in the latter case, we know this is also wrong by simply looking at the Apostle Paul's own life. For in the Apostle Paul's life, we see that there were countless occasions where he was in direct odds with the various governing authorities that he came under. We see multiple times where Paul was arrested, put on trial, whipped, and imprisoned on numerous occasions because of his refusal to submit to certain orders from his governing authorities. In fact, we know that at the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he was ultimately executed by order of Caesar himself, who was none other than the highest earthly governing authority in the world in that day. So unless we are prepared to declare that Paul was a raging hypocrite when he wrote this passage, we must come to the conclusion that while the Christian is to strive to live peacefully as law-abiding citizens, there is also a line where in order to remain obedient to God, it requires, in some instances, to be disobedient to the governing authorities. So it's helpful for us to acknowledge at the outset of our study in this passage that there is, yes, a clear tension between these two things, the ideal that the Christian is to strive for in being subject to the governing authorities and the lived reality that sometimes, in order to remain obedient to God, it puts the Christian at odds with their governing authorities. There is a tension here between these two things. And so we see from Paul's own example in life that he was able to reconcile this tension as he lived out his life faithfully to God. Now, first, we're going to look at Paul's three primary reasons that he gives in this passage as to why the Christian is to strive to aim to be subject to their governing authorities. The first reason that he gives is the biggest reason in this passage. Reason number one is because all authorities have been established by God. Let's read verses 1 and 2. If you haven't turned there, let's read it again. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against God who instituted it. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So here in this uh, two verses, Paul packs in no less than three times where he states that it is God who establishes all governing authority. Therefore, he argues that because God's sovereign reign and rule stands supreme over and above all earthly rulers and governments, It is God who we are being subject to, whether our governing authorities, the earthly ones, recognize him or not. Now, 
a good example of this would come when Jesus stood on trial before Pontius Pilate. And you remember how in this exchange, Jesus is standing silent before Pilate. And Pilate is essentially trying to help him out. And he's trying to get him to talk. But Jesus is a silent lamb led to the slaughter. He won't reply. And so finally, Pilate tries to intimidate Jesus into talking by saying to him, Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? He's trying to intimidate him. And finally, Jesus speaks, and you remember his reply. Jesus said to Pilate, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you above. And so, though Pilate in this moment failed to realize it, he, as an earthly ruler, was actually speaking directly to the very one who had given him his power and his position in the first place. And so in this great irony, here earthly power is trying to intimidate the heavenly power that actually gave it to him. And so Jesus points him out on his error. This power that's been given to you was from above. You didn't, you didn't gain it yourself. It is from above. Elsewhere in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, our call to worship this morning. There we see at the close of, of that passage in verse 5 that Jesus is called the ruler of of the kings of the earth. Now that's quite a title, isn't it? The ruler of the kings of the earth. So Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Pilate thought he was above Jesus, but actually it was the other way around. Jesus stood there as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so whether earthly rulers acknowledge him or not, Jesus rules supreme over them, and they will ultimately stand accountable before him, not the other way around. And they will stand accountable to him as to whether their rule was just or unjust, righteous or unrighteous. And they will be held accountable by God himself. And in this realm, what Paul taught last week, we looked at in chapter 12, where it talked about vengeance belongs to God. He is the one who will repay. It's not up for us as man to repay. This would directly fit with earthly rulers as well. That when there are unrighteous rulers, when there are wicked rulers, God is the one who will ultimately judge them. And he will do so perfectly and justly. And so there is no governing authority lest it is given from above. But I also wanted you to take note that it is also only taken from God above. And we read this in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. There God said to Daniel, or through Daniel, he said, God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. So here again we see God's sovereignty that not only he gives power and sets up kings, but he also removes kings and brings them low. God is over and above all earthly rulers. And so this, the number one reason Paul gives as to why a Christian is is to strive to be subject to their governing authorities is not because the governing authorities themselves reign supreme, but because God reigns supreme over them and therefore we trust in God. We trust in his sovereign goodness over and above earthly rulers, even and especially when they govern in ways that may be unjust or sinful. For ultimately, it is God at work over the affairs of mankind, both raising up rulers and bringing them low according 
to his will and purposes. And one of the the hardest things for a Christian or anyone, I think, to wrap their minds around is that God can equally use just rulers to do his will as well as unjust rulers. In fact, sometimes he's even used downright wicked rulers to fulfill his purposes. And we see numerous examples in scripture where we saw in the video Pharaoh we, we know many others, King Cyrus, pagan kings, King Nebuchadnezzar as well, uh, King Herod. These were all wicked rulers in their own right, or pagan rulers, who still God used for his purposes. This, this doesn't mean they weren't held accountable still to him for their own actions. But still, in the grand scheme of his purposes and plans in history, God can use the good as well as the wicked. And so this, again, is under his sovereignty. So this is the first reason that Paul gives. The second reason that Paul gives that the Christian is to strive to be subject to governing authorities is because the government restrains evil by maintaining law and order. Verses 3 and 4 continues. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So here what Paul is saying is that at the most fundamental level, the God-ordained role, the primary task of government, is to restrain evil. And the reason that, that this role even exists is because we live in a fallen world. And God knows that in this fallen world where sin lurks in the hearts of every man, woman, and child, that if it were not restrained, that evil left unchecked would would produce anarchy and and just suffering uh, of of wholesale variety. And so he, he has tasked the government, the authorities, with this job of restraining evil by punishing those who do wrong, those who do evil. And so, as we've seen it throughout history, it can take different forms. But in general, this means that through laws, through courts, through judges, and through law enforcement, the government restrains evil by punishing those who murder, assault, steal, cheat, or perpetrate some form of severe harm against others. Now, here in Canada, of course, we all but take this for granted, that we have this system of law and courts. And, and we take the fact that we have basic law and order for granted. But I guarantee you that if you were to go live in a part of this world that does not have these basic fundamentals of law and order, take, for instance, if you were to go and live in the failed state of Somalia for even a short period of time where the government, you know, a, a while ago already just completely collapsed and it turned into a state of anarchy, And now there's competing warlords who essentially amass soldiers and guns and weapons and try to take over. And there's just nonstop uh, fighting and tension. And and some of the worst evils can be perpetrated without any fear by the evildoer because there is no one to restrain them. And so if we were to go live in Somalia for even a short period of time and we were to come back to Canada, I guarantee you we wouldn't take our basic law and order for granted anymore. You see, God knows that in this fallen and dark world, anarchy and wholesale evil will flourish if it's not kept in check by governing authorities. And so Paul says, for this reason, they do not bear the sword for nothing. God has given them the sword to restrain evil. 
So this is the second reason that Paul gives. The third reason we are to strive to be subject to governing authorities is to keep a clear conscience. Verses 5 to 7. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, respect. If honor, then honor. Now, What's interesting here is that the specific application that Paul refers to here regarding keeping one's conscience clear is paying taxes. Isn't that interesting? That the very first thing he thinks of is paying taxes. Now, citizens chafing under the burden of taxation is as old as government's existence. This is not a new phenomenon. If you watch the leaders' debates and listen to anything, taxes, taxes, taxes are always a subject of debate in politics and as citizens relate to their governments. The Jews, of course, we look in the New Testament and we know the historical context. The Jews, they chafed under having to pay the Roman taxes in addition to the Jewish taxes that they already paid. And not only that, the taxes they had to pay to the Romans was to an occupying force, an empire that they did not want. They were under their boot. And so they chafed at the fact that they had to pay this additional tax. And so we see the Jewish leaders, they even questioned Jesus about whether or not it was even right to pay taxes to Caesar. And so in reply, Jesus asked for a coin. And he held it up and he asked them, whose picture is on this coin? And the reply was, Caesar's. And then Jesus famously said, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And so as Christians, no matter how unfair they may seem to us, or or how high or too high, we keep a clear conscience before God by giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, and giving to God what is God's. For yes, while the government receives our taxes... God receives our allegiance and our worship and our very lives. And so we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. And so to recap Paul's three reasons of why Christians are to be subject to their governing authorities. First, because all authority has been established by God. Second, because they restrain evil by maintaining law and order. And third, for the sake of keeping a clear conscience. Now we move on to the matter of of where is that line drawn where in order to be subject to God, where we give God what only he deserves, where is that line that requires we not be subject to earthly governing authorities? I will share with you four different examples of this. The first example, as I already alluded to, we saw in our video this morning. And it's the example of the Hebrew midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh's order to kill the baby boys. In Exodus chapter 1 and verses 15 to 21, there we read that the Pharaoh of Egypt, he he brought the two uh, chief Hebrew midwives to him and he ordered them directly to kill all the Hebrew baby boys immediately after birth. But in verse 17, we learn, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. 
Then, we, we read later on, when Pharaoh questioned them about this, why are the baby boys not dying? The midwives even lied and said that the boys were surviving because the Hebrew women were so vigorous that they were giving birth before the midwives could arrive. And then we read that God blessed the midwives for not killing the baby boys. He blessed them for being disobedient to Pharaoh in this regard. And he, in fact, blessed the midwives with families of their own because they had feared him more than they feared Pharaoh. And so from this account, the principle becomes clear that when those in governing authority give an order to do something that God's word has made clear is wrong, then the only right thing to do is to fear God more than our fear of man, to disobey that unlawful order, and to obey God instead. A modern-day equivalent of this principle in action would be the Holocaust of the Jews during World War II. Now, many of you will have read Corey Ten Boom's famous book, The Hiding Place. It's an incredible book. If you haven't read The Hiding Place, I highly recommend that you do. And with that as a backdrop, I want you to consider that in those circumstances, it was Corrie ten Boom who was saving Jews from the Nazis by hiding them in her home. It was she who was the one who was disobeying the law of her government. While at the same time, it was the citizens who snitched on them, and it was the SS soldiers who took the Jews away and ultimately the Ten Boom family to concentration camps to die. It was those soldiers who were the ones being obedient to their governing authorities. So think about this. It's, it's the inverse is happening here, right? Just like with the midwives. And we see here that the bottom line for the Christian is that no matter what ruler or authority orders it, in order to re remain obedient to God, if the evil action is, is, what, is what has been commanded from a governing authority, that must be disobeyed in order to remain obedient unto God. And so we have a clear example of this in Scripture. The second example I'll point out to you is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who famously refused to worship anyone or anything other than the one true God. Now, most of you will know the details of this very familiar story. In the case of Shadrach, <coughs> Meshach, and Abednego, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar his ego was probably the biggest of any man that has ever lived, ever, I think, because who else could have an ego big enough to build a 90-foot-tall statue plated with gold in his own likeness and then have a big band ready that every time they played, all subjects, when they heard the sound of the music and all the instruments are listed, had to bow down towards this 90-foot golden statue and worship it. Talk about an ego, right? And so... Not only was this ordered, but the consequences were also listed. That anyone who does not fall down and worship the golden statue will immediately be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, of course, the three God-fearing men stood out like a sore thumb. Why? Because they were standing while everyone else was bowing and the music was playing. Word came to King Nebuchadnezzar. They continued to refuse to bow down, even under his direct threats. I'm stoking up a fiery furnace seven times hotter than before. They still refused. And they even boldly declared to the king, The God we serve is able to save us. 
But even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Well, we know the enraged king has them tossed into this fire. But God was clearly pleased with the three men who were willing to be burned alive rather than be forced to worship a false god. And so God intervenes and he miraculously protects them and spares their lives, whether it was an angel in the fiery furnace with them or perhaps the pre-incarnate Christ themselves as a detail for debate, but God protected them. They walked out and it says not only were they not singed, there wasn't even a smell of smoke on them. And so God gave his approval to these men for disobeying this order from the king. A similar scenario unfolds with Daniel, when because of a treacherous plot, he is put into the dilemma of either obeying the king's royal edict, and it's been written down, the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it cannot be reversed, and it's been declared publicly in the, in the square that no one can pray to any god except the king for 30 days, or, again, be tossed into the lion's den. These kings love doing these things, don't they? Now, what is Daniel going to do? It's a dilemma. And once again, we know that God was pleased with Daniel's decision. As he chose to disobey the king's edict, he would not hide away his worship. He opened the window. He prayed towards Jerusalem as he had always done before. He was willing to be tossed in the lion's den for its sake. And we know that God intervened once more. He sent an angel. He spared Daniel from the lion's. Now, in both accounts, the principle is clear. No ruler or government authority has the right to force someone to worship anyone or anything. Nor do they have the right to force someone to stop praying to or worshiping God. This is beyond their God-given authority. However, if, as these kings in the past, if they attempt to do so anyways, just as Nebuchadnezzar, and even today, as many communist and other forms of government still do, where they, where they try to either force worship of the state or compel people to stop worshiping God, the Christian response is to continue to worship the one true God and him alone, no matter if the consequences be imprisonment or fiery furnace or lion's den. And now we have the third example. We go into the New Testament for this example of the apostles' refusal to stop preaching in Jesus' name. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, we read of what followed Peter and John's healing of the crippled man at the temple gate called Beautiful. The man's dancing around. They know he's a cripple. How can this be? A great crowd gathers and Peter and John begin to preach a powerful sermon about Jesus and how they had crucified him. But God raised him from the dead and now he stands as king and lord. And so everyone is, is awestruck by this. And so word gets to the rulers. And the very next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law, along with the Sanhedrin, who were the who's who of the Jewish governing authority of the day, they had Peter and John arrested. They brought them on trial. And there they commanded them directly to not speak or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. But in verse 19, Peter and John gave the reply. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Well, they were then released, and yes, they went straight back to preaching the good news of Jesus. 
while things continued to escalate, crowds continued to gather, and finally the Sanhedrin have had enough. And they have all of the apostles arrested. And in Acts 5.28, they say to them, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And in verse 29, Peter gave this famous reply. We must obey God rather than men. Now here the clear principle emerges that at Jesus' great commission that he gave to these same men, the great commission in Matthew 28 verse 18, it overrides and supersedes all other earthly authority. Because remember the great commission Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So we see here that Jesus claims supreme authority from heaven and earth to go and to make disciples, to teach, to preach, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so no earthly authority has the right to undo or undermine or countermand what Jesus has commanded in this regard, to go, to preach, to teach, and to baptize. And so this clear principle emerges and we see the disciples standing upon this clear principle that Jesus' authority is the greatest and it superseded the authority of the Sanhedrin in this regard. And so that's the third example. And now we move on to the fourth example. And this is in matters of conscience. Now the previous three examples are fairly clear cut about where this line is when not being subject to one's governing authorities is necessary in order to remain obedient to God. And yes, this this always requires discernment. Christians are definitely not called to, to seek to be rebels. We are to seek always to be peaceful, if at all possible. And so we don't take these things lightly, but there is a clear line where being obedient to God must come first. However, there is another area that's not quite so clear cut, and that is in matters of conscience. So while Paul wrote that being subject to government is also a matter of conscience, there can be other matters of conscience that may have greater weight in certain circumstances. And so he's going to expand on matters of conscience further as we get into Romans chapter 14. And there he explains that on certain matters of personal conviction, something that may violate one person's conscience and is therefore sinful for them to do, may not violate someone else's conscience and is therefore not sinful for them to do. And his examples are in regards to religious customs, dietary laws, and things of that nature. So the example that I will use here is from our our own church's Mennonite heritage regarding the doctrine of non-resistance. Now the strong conviction of Menno Simons the, the one who, Menno, Mennonites, that's where it comes from. Menno Simons, his strong conviction was that Jesus' teaching on the way of radical love, to the extent that we are called to love our enemies, it means that the Christian should never kill anyone for any reason. Even if they are ordered by their government to fight and kill in a time of war, the Christian must refuse. This was his strong conviction. And so for this reason, when conscription began during World War II, and many Mennonites, many Mennonite men were ordered by their government to go and to fight, but because it violated their consciences to do so, 
many of them refused and were labeled, fittingly, conscientious objectors, or COs for short. Many of them, including some men from our very own church family, some of them who have passed along, it's fascinating when I was able to hear some of their stories of their time spent in work camps. Well, they were sent to work camps to contribute to the war effort in that way. Others, however, were willing to enlist in non-combat roles, such as in the medical corps or other support roles that did not violate their conscience by requiring them to take up arms. In fact, when I took my family a few years ago to visit the Museum for Human Rights in Winnipeg, I was impressed to see that there is a whole display there devoted to the 7,500 conscientious objectors who were sent to work in labor camps during World War II, of whom they listed specifically 4,425 of them were Mennonite men. Now, as a counter-argument to the doctrine of non-resistance, other Christians will make the point that nowhere in Scripture is military service explicitly prohibited. And they'll also point out that in the Old Testament, it's filled with numerous examples where God directly commanded his people to go to war and to, yes, kill their enemies in order to stop evil. And so for this reason, we know that there are also many Christians who did have a clear conscience to go and to fight, and even though they didn't want to, if necessary, to, yes, kill the enemy in order to stop evil from advancing. And so here we see that within Christendom, within the church, there are two sides of an issue. And now, of course, both sides can and often do argue that the other side is wrong. However, in matters of personal conviction and conscience, what is most important, Paul says in Romans 14, verse 5, is this. He says, each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. So in this regard, in this matter of conscience of whether it's right or wrong to go and fight, everyone should be convinced in their own mind. So the principle here is that if the government orders you to do something that violates your conscience, then if that issue cannot be fully reconciled within your own mind, then the Christian response is to peacefully object just as the COs did in World War II, for the sake of keeping a clear conscience. Now, I believe that there is an application here for us today as it relates to some of the current government health orders and mandates. Not everyone will share the same conviction on every matter. And believe it or not, that's all right. Just as it is with some of these other matters of conscience, you will never get everyone to line up perfectly in agreement on every single item. And so, we know that what may violate one person's conscience in one direction may in fact violate someone else's conscience in the opposite direction. And so for this reason, Paul further instructed believers in matters of conscience, he says, do not pass judgment on each other over disputable matters. And he further expands to say, bear in mind that not everyone shares the same convictions on matters of conscience. And so as fellow believers, we need to be respectful and accepting towards those who may differ from us in certain aspects. Now, none of these examples in any way replace the fact that Christians are still to continually strive to be subject to their governing authorities and to live peacefully as law-abiding citizens. It simply demonstrates the reality that so long as we live in a fallen world, and we strive to live subject to our earthly governing authorities, 
None of that changes that our highest allegiance must always be to God and to God alone. That the fear of God must come before the fear of man. Which means that sometimes our obedience to him will put us at odds with earthly authorities. And so if that happens, like the examples we saw in scripture, we pray for wisdom. We pray for grace to remain respectful towards authorities. We pray for the courage to stand firm trusting in God's sovereign goodness, that even in times of suffering, he will work out all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And this we see as the ultimate example of the Apostle Paul himself and the Christians in Rome to whom this letter is actually addressed. For we know that just a few short years after this letter was written, Nero became emperor of Rome. And he began to soon ruthlessly hunt down and murder Christians, many of them being fed to wild animals in the Colosseum. Now imagine with me for a moment that having just received this letter and having this clear instruction, be subject to your governing authorities, now they're living in the catacombs, hiding away. They've already known family members who have been lit up as torches in the hippodromes and fed to the wild animals in the Colosseum. And imagine going back to those Christians. And then saying to them that as you look at that Colosseum, someday a cross will stand right where Nero sits in the emperor's box. Someday a cross will stand there. And that cross will not represent the thousands of bloody crucifixions carried out by Rome, but rather that cross will represent the single crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And that someday Centuries after the Roman Empire is but a pile of runes and dust. Millions upon millions upon billions more will worship this man whose cross stands where the emperor used to sit. Someday the Roman emperors will merely be a footnote in history in the pages of scripture that tell Jesus' story. The ruler of the kings of the earth. For while kings come and go, and governments rise and fall, Jesus Christ remains the ruler of the kings of the earth, and of his reign and rule, of his kingdom that is coming, there shall be no end. And so as citizens of that kingdom, we pledge to him our allegiance, we pledge to him our love, we pledge to him our worship, and all of the things that he alone is due. And we pray for the wisdom and the grace and the strength to live well and faithfully in this world until his kingdom comes in all of its glory. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are the ruler of the kings of the earth. And you are our ruler. You are our king. You are our savior. And to you and you alone we give our worship. To you and you alone, we give our true and lasting allegiance. To you and you alone, we give our love, for you are worthy. And so, Lord, as we have heard from your word today, as we live in this earthly kingdom, this one that is still corrupted by sin and fallen, and we live under earthly rulers, help us, Lord, to have wisdom and grace and strength to live well and wisely in these days. 
that, Father, help us to be discerning. Help us to be respectful and loving towards one another, especially in areas of personal conviction and conscience. Lord, help us to be the salt and the light of Jesus in these days, that we can represent you well and faithfully. And Father, we pray especially for those brothers and sisters in other nations who struggle so much more than we could ever imagine under rulers and authorities who have banned them from worship, who have said to even pray to Jesus is a crime. And we pray for them, Lord, and we pray for strength for them, that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Daniel, that they will not give their worship to anyone else other than to you, and that they will continue to do so faithfully. And further, Lord, we pray that their example and the testimony that, Lord, it is often in those nations where the gospel has the most power and it grows as people realize that it's not just a nice idea, it is real. And that, Lord, to count the cost to follow you is, is a cost worth paying because you are king, you are savior. And so I pray, Father, that they would stir us, Lord, to live our faith boldly and courageously in these days to stand firm. And Lord, in these days, as you've commanded us, we do pray for our governing authorities. We pray, Lord, even as this election unfolds, man thinks that it's up to individuals and and votes and campaigns to determine who the ruler will be. But ultimately, Lord, we look to you, that you are sovereign above all affairs of the earth, including the affairs of the Dominion of Canada, who the leader will be moving forward in a few weeks' time. This is not news to you, and so to you, Lord, we entrust these leaders, this entire election. And we pray, Lord, that whoever it is, the Father, you would cause them to seek you, that you would guide them, and that you would give them wisdom from above to govern well. And so, Father, we pray for this and for our leaders. We pray for ourselves, Lord, to help us to be wise as citizens, both of this earthly kingdom, but most importantly, of the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.